Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. It's good to see you guys. It's good to hear you guys talking and hanging out and being friends. Um, never forget that that's just as worshipful a work as anything else we do on Sunday morning is the building the community of the church. So we're glad you're here. We hope you have a great holiday week coming up. I know it's a lot of stress for some folks. Um, I know other folks it's a lot of joy, and sometimes we try to manage both those things at the same time. So, man, we're with you while you're doing that. Um, before we get started today, I want to walk you through um, two identity crises that I had in the last week. If you don't know, I am in a constant state of identity crisis, um, not comfortable with who I am at all. Generally, I think that issues of identity are probably the most important thing happening in the culture right now. And I think we don't think about, and I think because we are worried about the legacy of the church, we generally shy away from taking in a Christian identity a lot of the time, and that hamstrings us from being open to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. Um, last Friday night, my brother-in-law and I took our kids to Detroit to go see Metallica and Pantera um, live. These are the bands that made me love music. They're the bands that made me love guitar. They're the bands that made me love to fight things. Um, these bands just hit me perfectly when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I still deeply love Metallica. I still love almost every album of theirs. Um, I know. This is, all, this is all aimed to trigger Jeremy Pittman. Um, but, so we're sitting there at this concert, and I looked down at myself, and I'm wearing a cool vintage Metallica t-shirt that I've had since, the, like, forever. Love that shirt. But... I was wearing khaki pants that I had bought at Costco years ago. And ashamedly, I love these khaki pants. They're the perfect like hiking pants. They're tough. The only thing that gets through them is my cat who bites me through them um, all the time. But I'm sitting at a Metallica concert wearing a vintage shirt and khaki pants and looking around me and everybody else around me is middle-aged dads wearing collared polo shirts. And 15-year-old Jason is furious about this nonsense. And then, because I can't afford floor seats, and I thought by this point in my life I'd be the kind of guy that could go sit on the floor at Metallica shows. That's nonsense, because Taylor Swift broke the whole concert industry. I'm there, and I look down, and the saddest mosh pits you've ever seen are trying to get started to Metallica and Pantera, because we are too old for this nonsense. <laughs> I, watching these dudes try to start a Pantera, like, especially the Pantera, who's a little more aggressive than Metallica, Watching these dudes, it'd be like the circle would start and they start shoving each other and you'd see them all be like, no, I'm not doing this. And they walk off. And then they couldn't get them started. So Metallica does what's called a snake pit. They do a concert, a stage, a circle stage with a hole in the middle like a donut. There's a snake pit. The snake pit has been like top in my brain since I was 13 years old, right? I want to sit in the snake pit and I want to just beat the ever-loving crap out of people who I share this affinity with. They're trying to start a mosh pit in the snake pit, but if you're the kind of guy who could afford the seats in the snake pit, you're not the kind of person who likes mosh pits, right? And I'm sitting there at this concert, like, I'm like, what happened to me? 
what? I used to be this guy. I used to be the heavy metal guy, like the, the dude over here in the jeans jacket. Like, what happened? I'm wearing khaki pants. <sighs> I'm yelling at my 15 and 16-year-old. I'm like, you guys got to behave, whatever. This is not good for me. Then Thursday night, Thursday night, I'm super excited, and I'm watching the Bengals game, and all hell breaks loose. Disaster. I thought about changing this whole service to a service of mourning and lament this morning. Um, and then I realized 15-year-old Jason hated sports and hated the people who played sports and hated jock culture. And I'm like, why am I now invested in these, these 53 men who I'm never going to know? It probably has something to do with the khaki pants. I don't know what's going on in my life anymore. I don't know who I am over and over again. And I'm still trying to be. This is my running joke about like, um, there's a guy who used to go to church here, Bob who would fight me about Metallica all the time. And he's like, you know, they don't sing about the things that they did on their first three albums. I'm like, well, no, because on their first three albums, they were alcohol addicts and they were 19 years old and homeless. James Hetfield is 60 years old, worth half a billion dollars, and he's got kids, right? He's not singing about the same thing anymore. He's grown and changed. And I'm caught, I'm thinking, and I'm stressed with how do we, how does, how is who I was, when I really got into Sad But True or Through the Never, these Metallica songs, it still make me want to like fight things. <laughs> Side note, I went for a walk Friday morning and I put on an old Pantera album and I swore on Hyde Park like somebody who was going to... I just, it just made me like swear up like this and people are like, what's wrong with this man? Um, I, I reverted to that, but that's not who I am either. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully the Holy Spirit has changed who I am. Hopefully the Holy Spirit is working and making me more in line with what the Holy Spirit wants me. And there's things out of that culture, there's things out of that world, the heavy metal subculture of the world, that were really important and I think are good and true reflections of God's image in those people. How do I put those up? And so this whole sermon series has been that question. There are two questions going into this. One is how do you take 12 tribes in Israel and make one nation. Twelve tribes with their individual history, with their individual customs, with their individual language, with their individual roles prophesied by their father 400 years before. Right? Go read the end of Genesis and read what, Abraham, or read what um, Israel says about his sons and their fate. They have unique identities and unique roles to play in God's good creation. How do you go from that tribal identity to a unified whole while still honoring the individual uniqueness? This is the key question bothering our culture right now. How do we maintain a unified whole and connection to our neighbor while also lifting up our diverse experiences and differences and thoughts and feelings and all those things? And what's proven is we're failing at it. We, as a culture, are failing at it, and whenever the culture fails, I will always believe it's because the church has failed to lead the culture appropriately. What we see in the culture that we don't like is a reflection of something the church has done wrong. We have not taught people how to honor those individual differences while also maintaining a unity. The second question of this sermon series is how do we change from tribal to settled, or nomadic to settled? Um, We've been talking for over a year now with a neighboring church who has been really gracious and generous to us and wants to, wants to do something where we use their space on Sunday mornings. 
We don't know if that's going to happen. We're still in the, they're Presbyterian, so you've got to have 7,000 meetings about it. And Justin's favorite thing in the world is to go to, these, to go to these meetings. But before we can do that, what will happen to our identity if we are no longer a nomadic church in a space that's not ours, that we just wander in and out of on Sunday mornings, versus a more settled place where we identify with a community in a time and in a place? Those are the big questions that Joshua is asking about the nation of Israel, and my hope and my prayer is they're big questions that, that God is asking us as a community. Um, I want to explore the very end of that text today, and then, uh, then we'll get ready to move on. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for who we have been. Thank you for the unique ways we have experienced you, the unique ways we've experienced each other. Thank you for the background, Lord. Thank you even for our trauma that you were able to redeem and empower and making us new. And Lord, thank you for who we're going to be. Thank you, thank you that your good work in us is not yet complete and that it's not our work to do all the time, Lord, that you are faithful to finish that work. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come today to Joshua 20 and 21. Um, Bible study stuff, I've tried to pull back from some of the technical Bible study stuff on Sunday morning. There's other time and place for that. But Bible study, especially in the Old Testament, 101 sort of thing. Joshua, I think, ends really at Joshua 21 with the verse we're going to preach to you today. And then there's four chapters after that. And what generally happens, especially with Old Testament texts, is stories float around in the culture. Stories exist. Stories are told. And scribes collect them. And so somebody says, oh, well, here's the story ended, but then this happened and this happened and this happened. Well, we got, this happened because of these things. So, so the, those stories get added in later to the text. And um, for, the, for the Bible story, they really are the bridge from how we get from the, the text I'm going to preach to you today to, to Judges, which is a just unmitigated disaster. Um, and Justin's going to walk us through that transition about what happens when Israel fails to live into the promise that was given to them. Right? What happens when that, that falls apart. But Joshua 20 and 21 is a little bit of cleanup for the text. So if you remember what's happened is we get all these stories about um, Israel coming into Canaan, coming into the promised land, um, and then they're settling, and they have to go to, con- there's battle and there's conflict. Um, resist the narrative that says that Israel conquered or Israel displaced, like this is, this is a fight that happened in the ancient world between ancient people, right, that happened for a variety of reasons, and just like when we see conflicts in the world today, there probably aren't good guys on either side. There's probably people, there's plenty of fault to find on either side of all, of all the stories. But resist the narrative that the Canaanites were like a peaceful, peaceful people doing nothing wrong. Like, like the scripture's real clear that God has an issue with the Canaanites as well. So they come into Canaan, they take the land, they take the cities, they're victorious when they trust in God. The purpose of Joshua 1 through 14, 1 through 13 is to say, when you trust in God, when you do things God's way, you will be successful. And when you vary from that path, it's a, it's a disaster. That's the whole point of Joshua 1 through 13. Then all the tribes get their cities and gets their land. The Joshua, divide, Joshua the, sort of the last faithful of the first generation, says, you get this, 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 you get this. And then those stories are codified and edited and written down to reflect later things over time. Joshua 20 and 21 is an interesting text because it's not about any of the tribes, well, one tribe, but it's got two other people, two other groups in Israel that, that exist and God's made promises to. In Joshua chapter 20, um, it's real short. 
Joshua follows through on the, from the, to the promises to Moses to create what's known as cities of refuge. And what a city of refuge is, is if you accidentally kill someone, not, not premeditated, not with malice, um, it, it uses the example over and over in Scripture, so some guy did this. Um, if you're swinging an axe and the axe head falls off and hits somebody in the head, you didn't mean to kill him, but his brother is going to want to come kill you for that. And so Joshua, through Moses, establishes 12, or six cities in Israel where you can go if something, an accident like that happened, and be protected. Why? Why would that be a command given to Israel? It's an interesting sort of thing because what we hear is you're protected from that dude seeking revenge, right? You're, you're, the, the family wants a, like a, there's a blood debt to be paid. What's actually happening there goes back all the way to the Cain and Abel story where Israel said, if innocent blood has been spilled, there has to be a reckoning for it. The land is poisoned if the innocent blood isn't redeemed. And so the, the avenger, the, the blood avenger or the redeemer, he comes after the person who killed that person so that Israel is not polluted. This is a way to protect Israel from a blood guilt. And Joshua says, we are going to have concerns greater than your blood guilt. We're going to be concerned about justice. And so there's going to be a place, and there's a process where people go through where you get to appeal to the elders of the town, and then they have a trial. And then they determine whether or not you're guilty of the crime before you. It's where, I mean, for us, culturally, it's the difference between manslaughter and murder, right? They're different things. We recognize intent. This is, depending on how you interpret this, this is one of the earliest establishes of nationwide justice in the, in the ancient Near East, this is one of the earliest establishments of justice that says, let's have, a, let's have a rational system to go through this so that we don't accidentally kill an innocent person again. And Joshua says, these people, their innocence, their dignity, their image of God is so important. We need to make sure that they are protected. Right? Joshua says... There are things greater than the way you've always done things. Like there's a new way to do things so we can be a nation and not warring tribes. Hold on to that thought. The second group of people that get land are the priests. So the sons of Levi. Sons of Levi are given, make sure I say this right. The sons of Levi are given 48 towns. So there's three tribes underneath the sons of Levi. Each one of them is given four towns, is given 12 towns. And then there's 12 other ones that are shared. So it's 48 towns given throughout the land of Israel so that the priests have no land or have no, like, they can't codify into one subgroup in Israel, right? So Judah becomes Judah. And then all the other nations are around Judah. Or all the other tribes are around Judah. Benjamin becomes Benjamin. The priests, the sons of God, are sent out into the territory. They're given towns, a little bit of land so they can, so they can raise their... Um, raise their livestock, and then their job is to mediate between God and people and to, to prepare the people for their, their, their religious education, to go to Jerusalem to worship, all of those things. Now, if you think that this was written in the 4th or 5th century, you think that this is King Josiah solidifying power. 
This is King Josiah making sure that the tribe, that the priests could never rise up and become like a, a counterclass to the king, to the monarchy, um, which is exactly what happens coming back from the exile. Um, the priests sort of abandon the notion of other individual towns in Israel, and they just center in Jerusalem, and they become a second dominant political power in the time. That's one way of taking it. The rationale that Scripture gives, Scripture says that God's priests are going to rely, learn to rely on God and their identity will primarily be as God's people, not as their tribe. And in doing so, in spreading them throughout the land, they provide connective tissue that makes Benjamin related to Judah, related to Nephali, sorry, excuse me, related to all the other tribes, right? The priests living throughout all the towns of ancient Israel become the connective tissue that draws the tribes from 12 bodies to one body, where they have a common identity in Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and his worship in Jerusalem. Their common identity, the way that they will overcome their tribal boundaries, is in their worship of Yahweh. And then they're given back their tribal identities which have meaning and are redeemed underneath the worship of Yahweh. And at that, all of Torah has been brought to bear. When that is fulfilled, when the Levites get their town, all the vision of Torah, all the vision of Moses in Mount Sinai, all of the law, all of the promises given after their time wandering out of Egypt, all of it is brought to fruition. What God has said is, we're going to make you a people who were not a people. You, this disparate group of slaves from dozens of nations and tribes and customs and backgrounds, you who were formerly Egyptians are now Israelites. You have been circumcised. You have taken the towns. You have a land. And I appreciate the way Dr. Z's put it. You bear witness to the wisdom of Torah in the world in physical and real ways. They have a notion of justice and worship that runs between the tribes and over tribal boundaries. Things, higher truths that supersede the divisions that seek to get between them. And they force the diverse, unique tribes of Israel to work together. And this is how Joshua 21 ends. Ashley, if you'll throw it up there, I forgot the remote control. Um, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Isn't that a great ending to this story? Think about going back to Moses, begging Pharaoh, just let, let that people go so that God doesn't have to deal with you, Pharaoh. You won't win, Pharaoh. Let my people go because there's a vision that God has for his people in the world. Here, in Joshua 21, the promises have been given. The promises have been fulfilled. Everything God swore to do to Abraham has come to be. And if they can just, if they can just do it now, if they can just do it now, 
to the beginning of the redemption of the world. Because that was always the point. It was always the point of Israel that they were the priests to the nations. They were always the ones who were going to call the nations to Yahweh worship, to reason, to wisdom, to right living, so that there would be an end to injustice and war and poverty and all of the things that some of the world. Israel had a purpose, and God had perfectly equipped Israel to do their job. And then we'll leave, next week, we'll wonder whether they did. I wonder, I wonder, could we tell the story of every promise of God being fulfilled? Do we know the mission that God has set his church upon? Do we know that the work that God has called the church to, and called us as individuals to, do we know what the mission is? Can we ever say, not one promise of the Lord has failed? I think we can't because we misunderstand the things that we want for the things that God has promised. Or we think the things that will make us happy are the things that God has promised. Or the things that will make us secure are the things that God has promised. And God has said, I'm doing this work over here. Why won't you join me in this good work? So that then we can say, not one promise of the Lord has failed. God's promises, and this is important because Israel loses this too, Instead of being aimed at our, at our purposes and our wishes and our promises, God's promises are redemptive and they are creational in nature. They have the purpose of all of God's image bearers being redeemed, of everything that's broken being healed, of every place that's spoiled being blessed. God has a whole vision, and that's the whole purpose of Genesis 1 and 2, is for us to know the purpose of God and his creation, where he builds a fruitful garden where life thrives, and we are the best of ourselves that we can be in submission and love to each other as the Spirit and the Father and the Son are in love and submission to one another. We get to watch them and imitate them and live in the cool of the garden where the Father walks among us. And he wants that for Every single person that we meet, every single person has dignity and honor and is worthy of our love and our attention. It won't look for us to, it won't do for us to look to God for things that, for example, harm our neighbors. It can't be that we want God to do something that's going to get me mine that'll be good for me, but that will harm our neighbors. I was wondering this week, so the news has all been bad, right? The news is dominated right now by bad news, particularly two conflicts, one in the Ukraine and one in Israel. They're bad. Do you know, do you know about the conflict in the Congo? There's a civil war devastating the Congo. And do you know what they want? They want cobalt. And they want cobalt so that they can make our smartphones and our electric cars. They are done killing the child laborers there and moved on to killing each other so that we can have cell phones or so that the Chinese can have cell phones. That's the fight. It's, it's a proxy war between the East and the West. It will not do for me to take any side in that conflict that harms an image bearer of God and I carry in my phone in my pocket, the source of the conflict. And I was banging my head against the wall all week because I don't know how to resolve that conflict. I don't know what the path out of that is. 
Israel has the same problem. They knew they had a problem, but they continued to tell the story that said, at some point, someday, somewhere, not one of God's good promises will fail. We know the world is not what it should be right now. Not one of God's good promises will fail, and every child caught in a war zone right now will be redeemed and restored. That might be a painful lesson for us. Thus, uh, us in the West might have a painful reckoning coming as we adjust to that. That God deeply loves the victim of every conflict in the world. Every conflict. Can we, instead of having tribalized vision, instead of having the vision that looks to me and mine, whether that's, pick, pick whatever demographic group you're a part of in America right now, right? Can we have a vision that transcends those demographic groups and looks to the whole of everybody around us? Probably not. It's hard. Can we start with our church community? Can we start with saying, what I want is for God's good, loving care, God's redemptive justice for every single person in my church community? Every single person that joins me in worship in Sunday morning or online with us, can I want good for them even if it costs me something? Will I go visit the sick, the hungry, the naked, the imprisoned, the, the people that are lonely? Will I give up my time, my money for my job, my comfort? Will I give up me for someone else? When we come on Sunday mornings, do we come and only connect to the people we already know? Or do we look to the stranger who's sitting by themselves because they don't know anybody yet in a fairly tight-knit community that can be a little difficult to bust into? Right? I, this is, I love this church so much, but man, God help new people because you all have known each other for years, right? And we're all really good friends. Are we going out of our way to find our neighbor who's alone and by themselves so that they can feel loved and accepted and welcomed on a Sunday morning? What happens to Israel between, between this passage and chapter 21 and the post-Babylonian exile? What happens is that Israel turns inside, it turns to itself, it turns to its tribes, it turns to its self-defense, and it forgets the worship of Yahweh as its identity. Maybe it takes its identity as the, the nation of David, the warrior poet. Or maybe it takes its identity as, as, as the sons of Solomon, the greatest king of the ancient Near East, and his riches and his wealth. But it doesn't take its identity as the people who love Yahweh and his ways of doing the world. And so they fail. So Israel collapses. Israel falls apart. And the thing that maintains them, the thing that leads to Jesus, the thing that gets us our path toward redemption is that through every disaster, through every generation, through every famine, they can remember the stories where Yahweh has been faithful to them. And they tell those stories. And every generation, they tell them in a new way. Do you remember? Do you remember what Moses did? Do you remember when Yahweh saved us at the Red Sea at Mount Sinai? Do you remember Joshua taking the city of Jericho? Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? 
Israel knew and renew and re-inhabited the story of God in every generation. And I think that that's a challenge going forward for us. You and I, you and I live farther away from Jesus than Joshua did from Abraham. Like five times farther. It's been a long time since Jesus ascended. Are we capable of looking backwards at the story like Joshua was, grabbing hold of the values inherent in it and living like they are today? The way of Jesus is difficult. The way of Jesus asks of us. Somebody the other day was saying something about, I was helping somebody do something. Like, man, you're really helpful. I was like, you know I hate being helpful, right? Like, I'm annoyed. I get into it and I get grumpy about it. But Jesus has called me and not given me an option. My heart will follow obedience. My heart will be trained to care about the things Jesus does, or things Jesus cares about when I do the things that Jesus does. And I think that's the promise for us today is we have to have faith. We have to have faith in that story because if Jesus is nothing, then who cares? But if Jesus is Lord of Lords, if Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, if Jesus has put sin and death in their place, then my only option is to follow where he goes and to know, to know that not one of the Lord's good promises has failed. And I may be part of those coming to fruition, right? You may be part of the Lord's good promises coming to fruition in somebody else's life because God desperately loves your neighbor and wants to see them redeemed. I'm gonna invite the band to come back down. Um, for Joshua, for Joshua, the path towards that redemption, the path towards that newness, the path towards that creation was through conquest and domination, right? Joshua uses the military to come in. Joshua rules over them with a fist. For us, the path towards that redemption, the path towards seeing every promise of the Lord fulfilled runs through the cross of Jesus at Golgotha on a Good Friday. It runs through us coming and saying, Lord, not through my might, not through my power, not through my strategy, not through my like, planning and my cunning. The victory of the Lord comes through my submission and my death and my resurrection. As you come today to take communion, what are the good promises the Lord has made you? What has God promised to do and how is he going to make that promise come true in your life this week? How is he going to make those promises come true for your neighbors through you this week? The Lord stands ready. Joshua says, not one of the Lord's good promises have been, has, been, has, been, has been neglected. Come, come and taste, come and see the good promises of God. Lord, we give thanks to you. There are places, Lord, where we abandon. There are places where we seek to, where we fail to seek out what you've called us to, Lord, and then there's just your amazing steadfastness. Lord, there is you moving forward, moving ahead of us and clearing the path. So Lord, let us be obedient. Let us be the people you have called us to be. Give us the faith and the strength, Lord, to lay down what we want, to lay down our agendas, Lord, and to pick up your good promises. We love you, we trust you, in Jesus' name, amen.